Let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Esther. I think Esther, just in terms of story, is one of the most compelling stories in all of the Bible. It's just fascinating. And um, one, one of the things that we don't think about or talk about when it comes to biblical literature sometimes is, is the literary beauty of the text itself. I had a, an Old Testament professor that used to talk about the intelligent design of the Bible. He wasn't just talking about the inspiration of the Bible. Clearly, the Bible was inspired. But God inspired the Bible utilizing uh, literary features and devices that lend artistic beauty to the text. Um, You'd be hard-pressed to find a more beautifully written, more compelling story than what we have in the book of Esther. So I look forward to our time together in these 10 chapters tonight. It's also one of those books that I think people come to sort of wacky conclusions about. And uh, we'll touch on a little bit of that along the way tonight as well. But I, I hope that we'll... And, I, and what I'll try to do is uh, limit commentary and spend a lot of time with the text because it is so well told here uh, and, it's, and it's communicated in such a compelling way. One of the first things you often learn about the book of Esther when you begin studying this book in the Old Testament is that it does not contain the name of God. God's name never appears in the book of Esther. In fact, the name Abraham, the idea of covenant, prayer, or even the Davidic kingship over Israel is never mentioned. Uh, None of those ideas or concepts are, are mentioned even once in the book of Esther. It is, at first glance, a romantic drama that details the tragic but triumphant story of this Esther, a a beautiful young Jewish girl who rises to prominence uh, in in Persia in a powerful kingdom. This lands within that same general general time period as the Ezra and Nehemiah books that we've studied over the last couple of weeks. In fact, the events of this book take place between the first return under Zerubbabel, which we uh, talked about two weeks ago now, and the second return led by Ezra, um, and it happens in the city of Susa, which is a a significant location in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as well. When you look deeper, it's not so much about the romance, it's not so much about the drama of Queen Esther's life. The Esther narrative, by virtue of not mentioning God, highlights the fact that here's a people displaced from the promised land. And and that even where God is not apparent, he is at work for the good of his people. God's name doesn't appear in the book of Esther, but he is the hero of the book of Esther. He is the main character. What you begin to see over in the latter chapters of the book of Esther are all of these coincidental things that begin to happen in Esther's life, in the life of Mordecai, her cousin, who's her adopted father, in the life of Haman, who is uh, the enemy of Mordecai and the enemy of the Jews, in the life of Xerxes, who is the king. All of these things begin to fall into place uh, such that God's people are preserved and great glory is, is attributed to his name. God is faithful, isn't he? Even where his name is not mentioned, he's at work for the preservation of his people. The outline is essentially the significant events. The story unfolds in a pretty clear, uh, straight, straightforward kind of way. Looked at chapter 1, where the scene is set. 
some of your translations will refer to this Persian king as Xerxes. Some of your translations will refer to this king as Ahasuerus. My translation refers to him as Ahasuerus. They are the same person. But since Xerxes is easier to say than Ahasuerus, I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes tonight, and you'll know who I'm talking about. Verse 1. These events took place during the days of Xerxes, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the fortress city of Susa, and he held a feast in the third year of his reign for all of his officials and staff. And all the army of Persia and Mede, the nobles and the officials from the provinces, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So this scene is set now for us. There's a 180-day party in honor of King Xerxes and all of his great accomplishments. There's a great deal of discussion in verses 5 and 6 as to the possessions that Xerxes enjoys, the power that he enjoys. But if you really want to understand what fuels the party, you go down to verse 7. And there the Bible says, Beverages were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and no restraint was placed on the drinking. Now that kind of description ought to be an indication for us that bad things are coming, right? The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Xerxes' palace. So what we have is an ancient Near Eastern Mardi Gras that lasts not one week but 180 days in celebration of King Xerxes. In verse 10, the Bible says, On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Xerxes commanded Mehum, Biztha, Harbana, Biktha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs, who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. Now, because I was a lost person for almost 20 years, I have seen this scene unfold. He says in his stupor, go get my woman so all of my friends can see what she looks like because she's very beautiful. Now, I've seen the other side of this scene as well. Xerxes is not the only one who has been partaking of the wine. Queen Vashti has been enjoying her share as well. And she says what most southern women under the influence of intoxicating beverages would say, I ain't fooling with you. (laughs) That's exactly what she says. Which would be permissible, perhaps, except that Xerxes is the king of Persia. And kings aren't accustomed to their request being denied. And they sure aren't accustomed to their request being denied in the presence of their friends. Here is Xerxes with all of his entourage in the midst of a 180-day celebration of his greatness and authority. And he can't even make his wife walk across the palace so his friends can see how attractive she is. Now, this begins to cause some problems. She refused to come. The uh, command was delivered, and she said again, I'm not fooling with you. And the king's left with a conundrum. I've ordered Queen Vashti, who I care for, to come, and she did not come. What now will I do? So the king ultimately makes a decree. He puts 
her away from her. In verse 15, the Bible says, The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti, since she refused to obey King Xerxes' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. And he gets some bad advice. They tell him, you're going to have to put her away. If you don't, they, here's what they say. If you don't do something with this woman, all of our wives are going to act crazy. You're going to have to put your foot down, Xerxes, or we're all going to have trouble at home. That's, that's essentially what they say. In fact, in verse 18, they say, Before this day's over, the noble women of Persia and Media will hear about the Queen's Act and will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If you don't get this right, Xerxes, we all going to have to go home this evening and deal with this. So Vashti is ultimately put away from the king. She's uh, cast out of the palace, and although she's allowed to live and remains uh, with some status, she is no longer at the right hand of the king in the same regard that she had been in the past. Now we get to chapter 2. And the Bible says in verse 1, sometime later when King Xerxes' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young women for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may assemble all the beautiful young women to the harem at the fortress of Susa. What they come up with is an ancient Near Eastern version of The Bachelor. This was not an invention of NBC. It was long a reality in the Persian Empire. And so the eunuchs say, we're going to go out and we're going to find all of the beautiful women of Persia, and we're going to gather them together in the harem at Susa, and we're going to bring them before you, and you will ultimately choose from among these women who will be the next queen, which of these women will bring you the greatest delight. That woman will be your queen. I want to, I want to point out here, because... I've, I've run into studies in the book of Esther. They tend to be women's studies that would exalt Esther as the hero of the book of Esther and suggest that what we want is for our wives, our daughters, and our sisters to be like Esther. I want you to make a special note here that we do not want our wives, our daughters, our sisters participating in an ancient Near Eastern version of The Bachelor. That although, in spite of some decisions that are made both by Mordecai and Esther, Although there are some less than virtuous behaviors here, God, God raises. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from comment, Mr. Gerald. <laughs> so, in spite of the mess that it was, God was at work. Um, this is kind of the idea that we talked about on Sunday morning. It's in spite of us, not because of us, that God works through us. It's, it's grace that dictates that God can do anything with the absolute mess that we are. And that's the case with Esther as well. We're not trying to model our lives after, after Ezra and our study of the book of Esther. We're, we're thanking and praising God that in spite of the foolish things that we do, he is still pleased to provide for us, to protect us, and even to use us in certain instances. So they begin about this process of gathering all the young, beautiful women, the young, beautiful virgins of Persia together at the fortress of Susa. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, we're introduced to Mordecai, who is an important character in the Esther narrative. Chapter 2 and verse 5 says, In the fortress of Susa there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now don't forget that Mordecai is a Benjaminite. That becomes an important uh, historical background marker for us later on. Mordecai was the legal guardian of Hadassah, who was better known as Esther. 
And uh, because she didn't have a mother or father, mother and father had died, he had sort of adopted this cousin, and she was like uh, his child. He watches over her. He's always interested in her well-being. And so in verse 8, when the king's uh, command and edict became public knowledge, many young women gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's care. Esther was also taken to the palace and placed under the care of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. But verse 10 tells us that Esther did not reveal her ethnic background or her birthplace because Mordecai had ordered her not to. It's not the only time in the book of Esther that we're reminded that she has concealed her ethnicity. So while she's rising in favor, she's here won the favor of the eunuchs who have charge over this process of finding the new queen. Later, she has favor in the eyes of King Xerxes. She has favor in the eyes of the palace guards. She's a lady that enjoys great favor with other people. She has this secret. And her secret is that she's not from Persia. In fact, she's of a despised people. She is a Jewish girl. Mordecai is probably wise in instructing her not to reveal her ethnicity. He was fearful of endangering her well-being, and so she keeps it to herself. In verse 14, the Bible describes this process by which the king would choose his queen. The Bible says there she would go in in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. It's really a pretty twisted, sicko kind of way of choosing a bride. It really puts you in the mind of a lot of so-called reality television programming these days. But in any event, verse 15 tells us that Esther won approval in the, in the sight of everyone she saw. And verse 17 says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approved, approval from him than did any of the other young women, and he placed the royal crown on her head and made her the king. Now in verses 21 and following of chapter 2, we have this little side note this little background information that helps us to piece together some of the parts of the later Esther story. And the Bible tells us there that because Esther was now queen, Mordecai, her guardian, would stand around or hang around the king's court or the king's gate, the gate to the king's palace. Now in those days, if you were a person of importance, you would hang around the gates. Mordecai was there, not just because he was a person of some notoriety, but because he had real interest in the well-being of Queen Basti, who lived within the palace walls. And during the course of his time there, he learned that there was a coup being put together to assassinate King Xerxes. And with haste, he made sure that King Xerxes was made aware of this conspiracy, and ultimately it was squashed and the king's life was saved. So again, this is one of those coincidental things that happens in the life of Mordecai that, that wins favor for him later that contributes to this outcome whereby the people of God are saved and God is greatly glorified. Mordecai essentially saves the life of the king. Now, there's no real understanding by the king that there's a connection between Esther and Mordecai. That, too, is a part of the secret of their ethnicity. Now, in chapter 3, we're introduced to another main character in the story. In fact, he's among the most important characters in the story. He's a man named Haman. 
chapter 3 and verse 1 says, After all this took place, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and he promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. Now, I mentioned to you a moment ago that it would be important to remember that Mordecai was a Benjaminite. That is, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. It's also important to note that Haman, who becomes the bitter enemy of Mordecai, is an Agagite. And the history of those two families and their opposition to one another goes back centuries. In fact, it goes all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul, the Benjaminite king of Israel, was ruling. And God instructed Saul that he was to go and defeat Agag, the king of the Ammonite people. And Saul went about that business, except that he didn't kill the king. He brought the king back sort of as a trophy of his victory. And you might remember that Samuel, in a gruesome way, helps Saul to accomplish the assignment that God gave him. He pulls Saul's sword and hacks Agag to death. Haman is the descendant of Agag, hacked to death at the instruction of Saul. And Mordecai is the direct descendant of Saul, the Benjaminite king of Israel. Y'all tracking with me? So there's incredible background history that exists between Haman and Mordecai. Now, Haman has been exalted. Haman has been promoted within the king's court. And Esther, the cousin of Mordecai, is now the queen. But, of course, Haman doesn't understand or know these connections either. So when Haman is promoted, the expectation is that now when he comes riding through town on his horse... All of his subjects are to bow to him. The promotion that Haman receives is considerable. So now that Haman comes through town, the people are to bow to him, but Mordecai says no. Now, Haman may not know that Mordecai is a Benjaminite, but Mordecai knows that Haman is an Agagite. And and Mordecai says, essentially, "I'm I'm not bowing to this person. Now, sometimes we want to make Mordecai the hero of of Esther. But he doesn't do a good job at showing respect to the authorities that God has assigned providentially to him either. No one is behaving well in the book of Esther, if you've not picked up on this. Mordecai just says outright, I will not bow. In fact, there were people who came to Mordecai and encouraged him that he was disobeying the king's commands. And Mordecai said, even still, I will not listen to them. I will not bow before Haman. It's not going to happen. Not now, not never, not know how. In verse 6, the Bible says, when he learned of Mordecai's, this is Haman here, when Mordecai learned, or when Haman rather learned, of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout Xerxes' kingdom. The Bible says in verse 7, in the first month of the month of Nisan, in King Xerxes' twelfth year, Per, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. The idea of per here being cast, the plural of per is purim. If you look at a Jewish calendar today, there's a feast or celebration of purim, P-U-R-I-M. It's just a, it's a plural for lot. It's like rolling dice. And it's a celebration that remembers the favor that God showed the people of Israel during the period of Esther. Unfortunately, today, it looks a lot more like Xerxes' Mardi Gras than it does anything that would pay honor to what God did in the time of Esther, preserving his people alive. But from this point forward, 
as Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, and Haman uh, learns of Mordecai's ethnic identity, he decides within himself, I'm going to do everything within my power, not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill his people, the Jews, who live within Xerxes' territory. If they live in Persia, I'm going to do everything I can to see that they are completely eradicated. So he begins to lobby the king. He begins to to lean on the king, and he begins to maneuver himself so that he has standing to see the people of Israel done some harm. In verse 8, the Bible says, Haman informed Xerxes, there's one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the accountants for deposit in the royal treasury. Now, the king, not knowing that Haman was working in a deceptive way, and certainly not knowing that his own Queen Esther was of this group of people Haman described in such terrible terms, he signs off. And he seals the decree by his signet ring. He says, this is how it will be. Now, one of the, the strange things about Persian law is that once a decree had been made, there's no backing up on the decree. Once it has been done, it is finished. It must be carried out. Once a decree is issued, we're locked into it, for better or for worse. Xerxes has sort of a haphazard personality. He has a shoot-ready-aim kind of mentality. He's already blown it with Queen Vashti because he was hot-headed and rash in his decision-making, and now he makes a decision that puts his queen, his now queen Esther, and the people of Israel in jeopardy as well. So in chapter 4, Mordecai begins to lobby Esther that she would work on behalf of the people. Esther, you have status, you have position and standing with King Xerxes. Please lobby the king that he would relent from this decree that has been made. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you'll escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. That's probably the best known verse in the book of Esther. And so eventually Esther agrees that she'll go to the king. Now going to the king is a frightful thing. Because to come to the king without an invitation could cost you your life. It, uh, the punishment was, was execution if you were to violate the space of the king. Now, under certain circumstances, the king could allow you to be admitted, but he was under no obligation to do so. And coming there uh, without his request was a real danger uh, for anyone, but also for, Ezra, for Esther. In verse 3, Queen Esther goes to the king, and he asks of her, Whatever you want, even to half my kingdom, it will be given to you. Already Esther enjoys favor. God is at work granting her favor. She says in verse 4, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king commanded, Hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. 
Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If the king approves of me, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. Now she's really buttered him up. What would you like to have, Esther? And she says, O king, what would just please my heart would be one more night at dinner with you. And by the way, can we invite Haman to come along? Now, it's not clear to me whether she's using flattery here or she's getting up her nerve, but in any event, it worked. So they leave dinner on the first night with plans for dinner on the second night. And Haman leaves with a pep in his step. He has been invited, and he alone had been invited to a banquet dinner with the king and the queen of Persia. Verse 9 says, He left full of joy and in good spirits. But on the way out, he bumped into Mordecai. And the Bible says Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence. And Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman, Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. And Haman's wife and his friends said to him, Have them build a gallows 75 feet high. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. In essence, what the wife of Haman and his friends say is, if Mordecai bothers you so much and you enjoy so much power, just kill him. Have the king to kill him. So Haman gives the instructions that gallows 75 feet high would be prepared for the execution of Mordecai, perhaps even as early as the next day. Now, in chapter 6, in those first few verses, uh, King Xerxes experiences a providential insomnia. The Bible says that he cannot sleep well, and given that he could not sleep well, he dispatched a servant to bring the royal books, the historical record of the history of Persia, and to read aloud for him some former experiences. And it just so happened that his servant, in rolling to the proper place in the scroll, rolled back to that fateful day when Mordecai was standing around the gates of the palace and overheard a conspiracy being put together to have King Xerxes killed. And Mordecai remembered, or Xerxes rather, remembered in a moment the favor that, that Mordecai had done for him and wished late that evening that something great be done for Mordecai. And it seems as he drifted off to sleep that night, he said, tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm going to do something outstanding for Mordecai, the man that saved my life. So he's meditating on this. He's thinking about the next day, how he might go about blessing somehow uh, this man, Mordecai, who had been so kind to him. And it just so happens that as he's giving deep thought to how he'll show favor to Mordecai, that Haman walks in. And the king says, Haman... If you had the opportunity to bestow honor on anyone in the king's court, how would you go about that? Now, Haman assumes that he's talking about him. And Haman begins to describe a scenario in which he is paraded through the streets and there's great praise and adoration heaped upon him. He begins to describe Haman's own Mardi Gras parade. 
And the king says, you know what? That's a fantastic idea in verse 10 of chapter 6. Hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Don't leave out anything you've suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Now, how you like that? Seldom do we get to see it work out this way in life. But doesn't it feel good when it does? So here is Haman marching his most hated enemy through the street and instructing the people to give him praise as he is the man the king wants to honor. Well, that's good, but it's not over yet. On the next night, when the king's banquet is held and Haman is invited back there with Queen Esther and King Xerxes, Esther eventually gets up the nerve to tell the king what she's been wanting to tell him for some time. In verse 3, the Bible says, Queen Esther answered the king, If I have obtained your approval, my king, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold out to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Xerxes spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And Esther answered, The adversary and the enemy is evil, Haman. And Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. Angered by this, the king arose from there and went, uh, went from where they were drinking wine and went to the palace garden, essentially walks away. The, the king is so infuriated at what he's just learned. He has to remove himself and get composure before he can come back and address the request that Esther has made. And the Bible says there that Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the house of wine drinking, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the palace? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, Haman's face was covered and the servants of the king carried him away. So he goes out to compose himself and he walks back in just in time so that it looks like Haman, in pleading for his life, is actually attempting to assault the queen and he's carried away kicking and screaming. Now, the great irony is that Haman is hanged for his crimes on the very gallows he had constructed for Mordecai. He, he builds his own snare, and it entangles him. And, and brothers and sisters, I don't think it's a stretch that we make this application. This is what bitterness and enmity and hostility always lead us to do, to build our own gallows on which we devour ourselves. If you are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, I can promise you it's doing your enemy no harm whatsoever, but it is destroying you from the inside out. Haman quite literally destroys himself by virtue of his bitterness toward Mordecai. And think about this. It's a, it's a centuries-long bitterness. This, this is the Hatfields and the McCoys of the Old Testament. 
And, and neither party seems to have the ability to move beyond this. We can make certain observations about Mordecai's bitterness. He was the first one to resist paying honor to Haman in spite of the fact that he was an official in the king's court. Both parties are in the wrong, but God works and moves in the favor of his people Israel, preserving his people and bringing judgment against Haman at the same time. In chapter 8 and verse 15, the Bible says that Mordecai went from the king's presence having been honored, clothed in royal purple and white, with a great gold crown and purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because of fear the Jews had overcome them. I said to you earlier that once a decree had been made in Persia, it couldn't be undone. The only recourse that Xerxes had was to make a decree that the Jews could, the, the Jews could legally defend themselves. So there's a great battle. And the Jews are victorious. So much so that Persian people were claiming that they were actually Jews. I'm a Jew, you know. This was the Elizabeth Warren of the Persian period, you know. <laughs> so there's, there's success and preservation. They, they make it through. They survive this episode. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 16, the Bible says, The rest of the Jews in the royal province assembled defended themselves and got rid of their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they didn't seize any plunder. And they fought on the 13th day of the month of, of Adar. Now, again, here we have before us a book of the Bible, 10 full chapters with a narrow mention of the name of God. And yet God is at work powerfully and providentially by his unseen hand, preserving and protecting his people. It's often, it seems, that under these circumstances, God does his greatest work. When there's scarcely a thought of him among the multitude below within whom God is working. Some of God's greatest works happen in that kind of setting. Like a crowd of people gathered around the Jerusalem temple crying, crucify him, crucify him shedding the very blood that would atone for their sin without uh, an inkling of a thought that he might actually be who he said he was. Isn't he good? Isn't he faithful to us? And doesn't he have a way of reversing the, the misfortune of his people? Th th think of the, the countless ways that he was at work in the experience of Mordecai and Esther granting them favor with the king, favor with the people that resulted in this reversal of fortune, that even a, a greatly powerful official in the king's court set against them would be brought to judgment, while Mordecai and Esther of a despised ethnic group within the kingdom of Persia would be exalted to the right hand of the king. It's really a foolish thing when we doubt the power of God at work in our life, when we speculate as to whether God has the ability to do what needs to be done in our life. He is a good and faithful God who, whether you know it or not, is at work in your life for your good and for his great glory.